Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 82. We're going to get into the Word this morning. I did want to mention again the prayer meetings we're having Tuesday, Thursday, Friday from 7 to 8 a.m., Wednesday from 6 to 8 a.m. It's been very encouraging. Uh, God is leading us and doing some good things. I want to invite you to come out. If you can make it, I'm going to tell you, if you've ever... If you've ever had a time in your lifespan that this nation needs prayer, that the world needs prayer, it's now. And so let's let's storm heaven. I have I really feel like we're gonna be we're gonna be doing some fasting coming up here. I'm gonna invite you into that. But I want to make you aware that uh, on you can go to the website and sign up for fasting from now to the the election. And it really we need to we need to be fasting beyond the election. Whatever happens at the election, we need to fast. Because things are dicey right now. And so uh, what I really want to see is us having at least one person fasting every day from now through the elections. And so if you would like to take part in that, get on the website. You can sign up. And uh, some people say, well, pastor, if I sign up, then people know and I'm not doing it in secret. Listen, there's a difference between personal fasting and corporate fasting. Gene, I, I mentioned to Laura, your, your philosophy. Gene will, Gene will always tell you what he's fasting because he's seen the abuse of that that in Africa. When they were missionaries, there would be people that would go on a 40-day fast, disappear, get real sick, and uh, not good. And so uh, it's, it's about the motive of the heart. This is a corporate fast. This is a public fast, and we want to cry out for our nation. So I'm asking you, jump in. Uh, take a day. Take three days. Uh, jump in and fill in those gaps. We could have different people, uh, several people fasting on the same day, but we need to have somebody fasting every day from now till then, and I don't want to have to do it all. I don't you know, because uh, I can't afford the new clothes. So, uh, so if you'll jump in, that would be great. I would appreciate it. And uh, we really do want to storm heaven. All right, we're going to jump in. Look at uh, Psalm 82. I'm going to preach real short this morning. No laughing. Uh, I, I'm going to preach real short here. I want to go back over some ground we talked about last week. Now, we're in the middle of a series on prayer, and we're within a series of a series of a series of a series. And right now, we're dealing with the last of four facets of prayer. We talked about the cosmos the system God set up. We summed it up in this phrase, divine intervention only by human invitation. Then we talked about the nature of God. Then we talked about the nature of man, our anthropology, our, the biblical view of man, and why, what, why do we need to pray within that context. And then the last one is, uh, we're looking at the, the enemy. We're looking at, you could call it demonology, but it's really bigger than that. We're looking at how to map out the spiritual realm. What, how does this whole thing work? And really it's the sum total of these other three categories, but we're looking at the battle, the resistance, because what we've talked about up until now does explain why we need to pray, but it doesn't explain why we need to keep on praying. If God's given us authority, how can there be resistance to our prayers? And so we need to understand we are in a battle that we have an enemy. Enemy. And if you want to win the war, you've got to know your enemy. And so we're looking at those things right now. I started with this scripture, at least mentioned it last week. I want to hang some, some more stuff right on this, the nail of Psalm 82. Let's read it. A Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
Most people want to water that down and make that mean something that it doesn't because the implication is a bit troubling. Let me read that again. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The word there is Elohim. It's a plural word for a class of being. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now this is God speaking to this divine council, this class of spiritual beings known as the Elohim or as translated here as gods. And he's rebuking them. He, and then he gives them this charge. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the weak, wicked. They have need neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Then verse 6, I said, this is God speaking to this, this class of being, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any prince. Notice the word prince there. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and you sh for you shall inherit the nations. And so he's, it, it introduces to us in this psalm this divine council, this group of spiritual beings known as the divine council and refers to them as God or the Elohim. And God rebukes them and it says that he's going to call them He's going to uh, call them to account because of how they've stewarded the nations. And then at the end of the passage, it says God's going to inherit the nations. What in the world is that all about? Now, let's look at Ephi or, uh, Genesis, rather. Genesis chapter 6. Uh, Genesis 6, it says, it, it's talking about the, uh, the flood. Well, tell you what, let's go to Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel, verse 11. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a, plant, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitium for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed from the face of the whole earth. Now this tower that they were building in the ancient world, they, they saw that as a man-made mountain. And the mountains were the dwelling places of the gods. And so that's why the Egyptians built pyramids. The Babylonians built their ziggurats. And that's what this was. They weren't naive enough to think that they could literally build this ladder and arrive in heaven. It was an occultic tower by which they would interact with these heavenly beings. That was the idea, the, the backstory on this. So, uh, that, verse 4, that they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the tower and the city which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That's a big statement for God to make. It's one thing for me to think that. It's another thing for God to say it. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not be understood, they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left the building of the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. And it go, he goes on. Verse 12, or chapter 12, rather, he then introduced, introduces this new character known as Abram. 
who would become Abraham. So what is going on here? This Psalm 82 is referencing uh, this passage. Now let's look at another passage. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 32. I want, it, I want it, us to understand really what's going on in these passages. If we're to understand the battle in which we are engaged, we've got to understand the historical background in these passages. Deuteronomy 32 starts the song of Moses. This was a song he, he sang over, or he wrote for the children of Israel, giving them their oral history, explaining to them where they now find themselves at the end of his life, where he's going to pass the baton of leadership to his young protege, Joshua. So we have Deuteronomy 32. And uh, let me see here. Uh, verse 8. Look at what it says here. When the Most High gave to the... Okay, look at verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. So what he's referring to is an oral history. A spoken history that the Jewish people had. And really the then known world. We've, there's been many documents found from the Babylonian period. The Chaldean period. Uh, the Masoretic texts that give this same oral history. Okay, so Moses was referring to that and said, hey, ask your dads. They'll tell you this thing. And then he says this in verse 8, another strange passage, which I read last week. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his, his allotted heritage. Now, of course, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, and he was the one whose name went from being Jacob to Israel. So he's speaking of it, the Israeli people as his chosen people. So what is this talking about? Let's read it again. When the Most High gave to the nation their inheritance, and he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. It's a strange phrase. Now, some translations translate that passage according to the sons of Israel. Because it's a problem passage and they're trying to figure out what this means. Now, the Septuagint, I mentioned this last week. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Alexander the Great, started, he founded the city Alexandria in Egypt when he conquered Egypt. And he wanted to have the grandest Library and all of existence, and he had he had all the then known books of the world that he could gather translated into Greek, the language which he was disseminating over the world, and he hired some Jewish scholars to translate the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, and that is the Septuagint. They translated this passage, "The Sons of God." Now it's unanimous among scholars that this passage in Deuteronomy 32 is referencing Genesis 11, 11 what it's calling, what we just read the disinheriting of the nations where he spread them across the earth he fixed their boundaries he confused their language they gathered around their con the people that had spoke their same language and then populated the earth and so this passage in Deuteronomy that uh, Moses is referring to is calling reference to that. It would not make sense the way some translations translate this as the sons of Israel because Israel didn't exist at that time. 
Abraham had not even been called yet. If he was alive, he, he would, God was not on his radar. It wasn't until chapter 12 that we have Abram showing up before he became Abraham. The, the translation that many of the older manuscripts translate this as the sons of God. And that is the accurate translation. So what does that mean? Well, it's the same sons of God we read about in Job chapter 1. You remember in Job chapter 1 it says, And one day God gathered, he had the sons of God come before him on his throne, and he asked, the Satan is the, the accurate translation, the, the accuser. It may or may not be, let me rattle your cage a little bit, it may or may not be that that was the devil in that passage. We, we don't know. There's reason to believe that it was not. It was a, a, a certain being within the spiritual hierarchy. But Nonetheless, God says to him, have you considered Job? He said, where you been? He said, I've been going throughout the earth. In that passage, it says the sons of God presented themselves before God. It wasn't the men on earth. It was this spiritual, the, the spiritual beings known as the sons of God. They're also known as the Elohim. They're also known as the divine council. And so God rules by this divine counsel, and we see this show up several times in Scripture. Now, some of you have heard me reference this before, but I just want to make sure I'm laying the groundwork because some of you are wondering if I'm a heretic right now. <laughs> we see this divine counsel picture show up in several different passages. If you remember, I, I think I mentioned this last week, Micaiah was the prophet Ahab called to him and said, is there a word from Jehovah? He'd already called his pagan prophets and they said, yeah, go after the enemy, God's gonna give them to you. He said, uh, and the, 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 uh, the king of Judah said, don't you have one from Jehovah? And he said, yeah, but he always gives me bad prophecies. And so the king of Judah rebuked him and said, let's call him for us. It was a guy named Micaiah, he was a prophet. And he said, yeah, do whatever you wanna do. And Ahab said, how many times do I have to tell you not to give me a word except what the Lord is saying? Because he could tell. He was just being sarcastic. He said, okay. He said, I saw the Lord on his throne and he asked these spirits, how will we entice Ahab? And one stepped up and said, I'll become a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, that's what we're going to do. God is asking counsel of these beings. They are the divine counsel. It's not the same word. A counsel and, and getting counsel, but he, they are. God rules by a counsel. We see that that's what Psalm 82 is talking about. God took his place in the divine counsel. He is the ultimate. He is the most high God. The reason he's known as the most high God, because this word can be translated God. God he, they are gods. They're created beings, but they're these divine beings that God has delegated tremendous authority to. And he took his seat among them, and he rebuked them for the way they stewarded the nations. They were the ones that he delegated the nations to way back in Genesis chapter 11 and in Deuteronomy 32. Moses refers to this thing. So God divided the nations. He set the boundary lines. Matter of fact, this is what Paul is speaking of in Acts chapter 17 when he's preaching in Athens. Remember he said, "God, you've heard me reference this a number of times lately. God has chosen the times and the places in which men should should live, lest they reach, so that they could reach for him and seek for him and be found by him. 
God set the times and places in which men should live. He's referencing this whole scenario. Now, this is known as the Enochic worldview, okay? It, it, it has a term in theology, the Enochic worldview. This theology is laid out in the book of Enoch. Now, the book of Enoch is not looked at as canon or part of the inspired scriptures except by the Ethiopian Christians. They're the only ones that look at it as inspired. But the fact remains that the book of Enoch did, uh, it, it, it wrote out the worldview of the Old Testament prophets and it was endorsed by the apostles. He's really, in, he's speaking of the worldview of the New Testament apostles and the early church fathers. They, virtually all of them saw that as their worldview. Whether it was inspired or not, it was an oral history that was passed down again and again that elaborates on some of these passages. So again, I'm not saying the book of Enoch is the inspired word of God, but I am saying that it was the accepted worldview of the New Testament writers and the early church fathers as well. And if we don't understand what they believed, we can miss what they're saying. Does that make sense? And so the book of Enoch is an interesting read. I've, I've been reading through it over the last probably year. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. There's some, some things that are brought out that really help me to understand some passages that were somewhat confusing to me, some of which I am talking about this morning. So when it says that God divided the nations up against the, among the sons of God, but he retained for himself Israel, he retained for himself uh, Abram, what, what Moses is referring back to that, that God in chapter 11, he divided the nations up. In chapter 12, he said, no, I'm going to start with my own people. And it is on. And then in Psalm 82, we see that some of these ruling spirits rebelled against God. They are the ones that Paul refers to with the New Testament language as principalities and powers. That's why in Psalm 82, he says, you are, you are gods, you are princes, but you will die like men. He's bringing them under judgment because they have not stewarded their place of authority the way God intended. They rebelled and God is calling them into account. So now in the New Testament, we have these principalities or these princes over these territories, these geographic locations. So we need to understand, biblically speaking, we understand in the earth realm, in the, on the earth, there are geographic boundaries. There are, there are places ruled by different individuals. Well, we need to understand that the spiritual realm it replicates that same model. There are boundary lines in the spirit. And when you're in one territory, spiritually speaking, you can be dealing with things that you won't deal with in another territory. There are certain sins that become more prominent in certain geographic regions than in others because that, is the, that was the enticement of the enemy in that area and the human beings that are assigned because we know that God assigns the times and places in which men should live. That is the sin that they gave themselves to and therefore, that becomes a spiritual stronghold in that territory. 
You can see people go that, that live in one area. They, they end up succumbing to temptation, specific types of temptation. Many of you have driven through certain parts of town or certain cities or even nations, and you've run into something. I told you last week, we were doing a pastor's conference down in Tulawa, Colombia. We got there, and that night I thought, man, there is witchcraft in this city. I could feel it in the air. Didn't find out till the next morning that there was an international witchcraft convention there in that city that, that morning. I I felt it in the air. I, I ran into it, this witchcraft thing. And so there are certain pockets of certain types of sin, and we need to understand, because if we don't understand what's going on around us, let me put it this way. One of the enemy's primary strategies is have you walk into something externally and take it on internally as an identity. Let me say it again. If, you, if you're in an area where there is tremendous lust... What happens is, is the enemy wants you to take that on as an identity. Let me tell you a story here. This is, I'll try to be vague here because there are some little ones. Uh, Miss Sandra, Sandra Collier, one of our, our, Sandra went to be with the Lord about a year ago, but uh, her and her husband, Quimby, were on staff with us for a number of years. She told me a story one time of Costa Dare. He was a famous teacher and a professor at the Bible school they attended. He was a, a foreign man with a thick accent, brilliant theologian, and a man of God. He shared how one time he was in a, he was preaching at a church. That night, he went over to the pastor's house because back then, that's where they would put you up at their house there. They're having, you know, some tea and some dessert. And as they're talking, suddenly he realizes he is physically aroused, if you get my drift. And so this man of God said, I quickly searched my heart to see if there was any lust there within. And upon ascertaining there was not, I confronted the couple and said, which one are you in sexual immorality? And the wife began to weep. That she, she was having a secret affair. And God brought her to repentance that night. But the way he knew is his physical body responded to something in the room. Now there was a man who knew his identity in Christ. He refused to take that on as an identity and began to try to fight for victory because he already had it. He knew, that's not me. My body is responding to something outside of me. I'm picking up on something. Which one of you is in sin? And the woman confessed. When we, One of the greatest types of defense we have spiritually is knowing who we are because the enemy wants to get you off the ground of your identity and get you outside of your identity and begin to accuse you and if he can do that he can frame God as the adversary who's accusing you and you're at odds with God because you're living in sin and so we need to know who we are in Christ. And if we do search our heart and realize there's sin, we repent and we get ourselves back on the ground of our righteous identity. But it's very important we understand that the spiritual realm has geographic boundary lines. The reason the spiritual realm does is because that's how the physical realm operates. Again, what we said last week, that the earth was created the same time as the heavens. The first verse of scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were uh, created simultaneously because their destinies are intertwined. God never intended that the spiritual realm and the physical realm be disconnected. We are to manifest what's going on in the heavens on the earth. But the enemy, understanding that, moves in and tries to manifest his kingdom through human beings. And God is out to manifest his kingdom through human beings. 
And so we need to understand, God himself delegated the earth to, according to the number of the sons of God. Now there is a list uh, in that passage in, in Genesis chapter 11. I believe there's like 70 different nations that are mentioned. Many scholars believe, well, that represented a, a number of 70 sons. And therefore, that's why Jesus sent out 70 when he sent the disciples out to preach. We don't know. But you see how there was this, this setup for a showdown. God delegated the, the, sons, the sons of men according to the numbers of the sons of God, but he retained one group for himself. Israel, who he's going to now introduce in the next chapter, Abram, he calls him out and makes, into, makes him into a great nation, and by him he will bless the nations of the earth. So we have in the New Testament, Jesus comes. Oh, oh my goodness, it's noon. There, there's, okay, let me, let me just throw out a few things we'll pick up next week, okay? Because this is very intriguing and it's thoroughly rooted in the theology of Scripture. But many of us don't understand this because we want to be rescued from the troubling places in Scripture. We want to stay in the safe zone where there's no questions. But I'm telling you, we, we do disservice to ourselves because we don't understand the, the battle we're in because we don't understand the real cosmology behind this thing. God delegated the earth to this group of sons of God, some of which at least rebelled. And let me throw this out. In... In Jewish intertestamental period, this, what's called the Second Temple theology, the Second, the second Temple movement between the Testaments, uh, Jewish theology taught that there were two ways in which sin, en sin entered the world. The first was, of course, through Adam and Eve sinning and eating the forbidden fruit. The old saying, it's not the, it's not the uh, apple in the tree, but the pear on the ground that got us into trouble. The, uh, so sin entered the world there. But I know, boom, 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 I'm here all week. It, uh, so then there, the other one was in Genesis chapter 6, where it says that the sons of God saw the beauty of the daughters of men, and they came down and they had children with them. Now, some of you have heard teaching on that. I was taught uh, many times that, oh, no, that was, that was the sons of Seth. It wasn't that these, these divine creatures, these angelic creatures had children with men. But that is what that means. And the New Testament alludes to this in several passages. First Peter chapter 2. The book of Jude refers to this. And it talks about these beings, uh, what the ancient world, there, there's all through the ancient world, there's uh, oral history of this happening. It's a fascinating thing. This isn't isolated just to scripture. But we had these, what were known as, by the Babylonians, as the Apkalu, or the watcher angels. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of the watchers coming down and bringing the word of the Lord that he was going to come under judgment. There's this, this class of angelic beings known as the watchers, or the Apkalu, and some of those rebelled and took unto themselves wives, and they had hybrid children, which were the heroes of old. 
They were the giants of old, and that was the reason for the flood. And it says that on the heels of that, tremendous violence and debauchery came into the world because the oral history of this thing and the the New Testament writers, even though they don't directly address this, this was part of their worldview. The early church fathers believed that these apkalu, these watchers, brought secret wisdom to the sons and daughters of men. And they taught them about things they weren't supposed to teach them about. And that's why First or Second Peter when, and even Jude talk about false teachers. And then it talks about the angels refusing their assigned position, but got out of their assigned position. And it mentions them in connection with false teachers. And then it talks about sexual immorality. All of that is one, one idea because these beings came in and went into the daughters of men and had children, these hybrid children. And that is what Enoch tells us and the early church fathers believed that was the source of the demons. The demons are not fall, the fallen angels. Matter of fact, the, the watchers that sinned, it's very clear, Second Peter and in Jude, that they were bound in darkness with chains for eternity. They didn't get a second chance. They're not out here roaming around. But through the flood, when the giants, the Nephilim is what scripture calls this hybrid race, they, were, they weren't fully man and they weren't fully this divine being, these beings. And so their disembodied spirits that were released through the flood are the demonic entities that you and I deal with now. Losing their human body, they now hunger to fill their... Matter of fact, there's a, a passage in Enoch, he says, in losing their body, they now hunger and thirst and desire, so they seek to inhabit the bodies of men. And we need to realize that when we give in to temptation and get into... And the more perverted those things are, the more likely you're going to end up hosting one of these disembodied spirits that the New Testament calls demons. And some of you think, well, pastor, do you really believe in demons? Do you think that, that, that's, that that's just kind of a, a New Testament way of dis- describing mental illness? I'm telling you, I've seen many, many, many people manifest. I've seen people grow. I've seen uh, the first time I ever really got confronted, uh, the first time I ever cast out a demon was out of a three-year-old kid. And I, I was teaching in a Christian daycare, and every time I would say Jesus, this little ornery pipsqueak would stick his fingers in his ears and look at me. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. I was just kind of, you know, just me and a bunch of little kids, so I was just kind of being wild. And I reached over and said, in Jesus' name, at which the kids started going into convulsions. His eyes rolled back, started swallowing. <laughs> and I yelled for the director, Mr. Caldwell! <laughs> I was like 21 years old, terrified me. But I, I've, I've seen, I, I've been in places where the people, I've been in other countries where they don't speak English. They didn't know English. But as they began to manifest, all of a sudden that person spoke to me in a voice not their own in my own language that they didn't understand. This stuff is real. We are in a war. We are in a battle. And we need to learn how to deal with this stuff. But we got to know our enemy. And so let me close with this. 1205. How are we going to apply this? I, I, I. We're, uh, we'll, we'll pick it up next week. But I want you to, under, and if you have, if you have 
problems with this. Come and see me. Because if I'd have heard someone teach this 10 years ago, I might have thought about, well, I don't know if I want to sit under that guy. That sounds weird. And I'm telling you, it's thoroughly in scripture. And I can give you chapter and verse, okay? I can recommend you theology books that will tie these things together for you. So what we had was these hybrid beings that introduced tremendous evil into the earth. It was the inception of the occult. That's what that was about, this hidden secret knowledge. And it wasn't that what they taught wasn't true. It was their source and motive were wrong, which made them false teachers, which is a whole nother sermon, by the way. You can be a false prophet and prophesy truth, and you can be a false teacher and teach the truth. It has to do with the motive and source of your revelation. If you do it with the wrong motives, you open the door to begin to draw from a wrong source and you can be condemned as a false teacher. It's a sobering, sobering thing. It's a heart thing, okay? Amen. So let's, let's look at what God's solution was. He picked a man called Abram. He walked with him in relationship. The man, he said, you're going to have, your, your family will be like the, all the sands on the seashore, all the stars in the sky. And what happens? He has a kid. One kid, really two. One was but the child of promise. One child. That was the beginning of the massive promise. Well, that one had two. That, that, the next one had 12. And a man became a family and a family became a tribe and nations. And, the nation, and they became, they were blessed by God to bless all the nations of the earth. Because what God was driving towards is his answer to this thing was, I'm going to play this thing on your, on your level he said to the enemy, essentially. And what he did is he took a young virgin girl and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and he imparted his son to this woman. Completely God, completely man. And he went to the cross as an innocent man and he overturned it all. And then it says in 1 Corinthians that had the gods of this age, the rulers of this dark age understood, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Because it was their undoing. Colossians now tells us that the principalities and powers in heavenly realms, in his resurrection, he publicly humiliated them. He marched them through the streets and stripped them of all their authority. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, he now looks to you and I and says, okay. I, in chapter 1, he says, I have given you every spiritual blessing in those heavenly realms. The resources in the spirit have been given to you. But then in chapter 6, he says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. These entities who have had their authority stripped, we wrestle with them. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Because God has started a new race, a new version of the sons of God because he who believes he who trusts in his name he gives them the power to become the sons of God and God just like he did in the heavens he does it on earth he rules by a divine council of sons the kingdom of God is an aristocracy it's royal sons and daughters ruling with the authority of the king and you and I exist down here to take this land inch by inch to release the resources in the heavens on the earth, to displace those spirits who have been stripped of their authority. But we have to step into our position. There is a battle. 
And those enemies will try to entice you, to tempt you, to condemn you, to inflict suffering on your life. But Paul tells us a way to win this battle. Stand. And when you have done all, stand. You take your stand and refuse to give up that ground. And we will literally displace those principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And we will be able to release the resources in the heavens on the earth. Amen? All right. Let's stand. Let's... Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you would minister to any troubled heart in this room that thinks their pastor is a heretic. And Lord, I ask that you would instruct us. Lord, that we would understand your word, Father. Lord, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Lord, help us to tie the knots together, to connect the dots, so that we would have a biblical theology. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.